Hey, everybody, it's Tangentially Speaking. I'm Chris Ryan, your host, but you already knew that, didn't you? I mean, even if you've never listened to this podcast before, you must have known <clears throat> that I was the host, I'm guessing. So it's kind of a waste of time for me to say that every fucking week, isn't it? <clears throat> anyway, Chris Ryan here, uh, coming at you from uh, Portland, Oregon, tangentially speaking, brought to you commercial free since, I don't know, last November, I think. <clears throat> I'm going to be hitting you up for money sometime soon, uh, but I'm waiting until things get, the ducks get in a row. Actually, what's happening is a guy who listens to this podcast, I, I don't know if he wants me to say his name, I'll, I'll let you know officially when and if he does. Anyway, a guy who listens to this podcast, a uh, very nice guy, is putting together a website where you can patronize uh, podcasts, and he's sort of setting it up, and it seems like a really cool thing. We've been talking about, uh, I've sort of been a, a beta uh, contributor to the the idea and uh, you know, telling him things that would be attractive from a podcaster's perspective, or at least this podcaster's perspective, and things that would be problematic and so on. Anyway, he's getting that uh, all lined up, and once he does, I'll tell you about it. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, you can do it then. In the meantime, please do not subscribe uh, to the Libsyn Premium thing, uh, because uh, this this model is going to work much better. And if you do that, then it gets all confusing. I need to transfer names over. So everybody who's already done that, we're going to make sure to grandfather you into the new system. You'll get whatever bonus content I produce and all that. Um, but uh, if you're thinking of subscribing, hold on and um, don't do it for at least a couple of weeks till we get this thing lined up and then you can be part of the new system. News. I'm headed to L.A., <clears throat> next week, if you're listening to this uh, right away, actually, it'll be, yeah, this week, because this goes up Monday. I'm recording this Friday, so the podcast normally goes up Saturday to Monday, depending where you get it. Um, I'm heading down to LA. I'm going to record a bunch of podcasts down there with some of them for this show and some of them for other shows. Uh, I'm probably going to be doing a shrimp parade with Duncan and Joe. So that'll be a lot of fun. We're going to do it in Joe's studio. Right now it's scheduled for Friday at 2 p.m., I believe. If you are familiar with Joe's live stream, you can watch us on YouTube um, or I think Joe Rogan Experience. Uh, he has a live feed there. I'm not sure, but if you know, you know. If you don't know, it's easy to find it. Anyway, it'll be uh, Shrimp Parade, uh, I think it's Joe's turn, so it'll be on Joe's podcast. And I'll probably uh, try to do a podcast with Thad Russell, the renegade historian. Uh, drop in and see Daniele Bolelli and uh, maybe Connor Habib if he's around. 
So a lot of a lot of pals from L.A., interesting folks. You've heard them on here before. We'll catch up with them and see what's going on. This week is a very interesting guest, Steve Herman. He's a professor in Hawaii at a university out there. I'll let him tell you the specifics. But the the thing that's that he's here to talk about is his consulting work that he does, which is it's got to be, you know, in the top 10 most difficult and important jobs that I can think of. What he does is consults to judges, prosecutors, uh, police departments, defense attorneys on child sexual abuse cases. And what he's generally arguing is that we slow down, take a breath, and not get carried away by a sort of witch-burning hysterical frenzy that all too often accompanies these things. He's not in any way arguing, nor am I, that there is anything the least bit acceptable about the sexual abuse of children. But he is saying that because this is such a horrible betrayal of some of the deepest values that we hold as a species, um, we tend to sort of lose our shit uh, and stop thinking rationally and um, stop investigating these cases. We, we fail often to investigate these cases with the sort of professionalism and open-mindedness that we, um, that we hope uh, people in the criminal justice system bring to every case. And so uh, there, there's a momentum and a, uh, there's a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's not frenzy, but there, there's like a rabia in Spanish. I don't remember what it is, a rage. Uh, and, and there's a, uh, an energy that gets out of control around these kind of cases. And what he's trying to do, as I understand it, is to get everyone to sort of calm down and, and think about these things rationally. Because what we're looking for here is the truth and justice. We're not looking to burn witches. Um, so I find this, I found this to be a very interesting conversation and uh, Steve to be a, a fascinating and very admirable man. Um, but, you know, I'm telling you all this up front, which is much more of an introduction than I normally, normally do to these, with these episodes, because, uh, you know, I guess it serves as a, as a trigger warning. If, if this sort of material makes you extremely uncomfortable, you've been warned, that's what this episode's about. Um, so proceed at your own risk, as always. Uh, I guess that's it. I'm not going to really get into too much ranting uh, in this intro, because uh, I'm going to put together another podcast, uh, line it up for, for next week when I'm in L.A. So um, I guess I'm going to keep it short and sweet this week. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. And I put together another mashup. <clears throat> I've gotten... You know, probably the response on the mashups has probably been 10 to 1 positive. Those of you who don't like the, you know, the 10% who, who have written to say, dude, I hate the fucking mashups. 
uh, there's a fast forward button on whatever device you're using. So just jump ahead a few minutes and you won't have to listen to this one. But for those of you who do enjoy them, uh, I, I enjoy making them. I don't know why. I just like picking little pieces out of songs. You know, maybe it's, you know, it means more to me because of these little chunks of songs and the songs I choose are significant to me in some way. But, you know, maybe it's fun for you to just to hear shit and not know what's coming next. Anyway, this is a 70s mashup I put together of some songs that, uh, that resonate with me from the 70s, which is when I was a teenager, man. I, I was in high school from... 76 to 80, I uh, had a Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme with an eight-track player, and uh, I think there were Bose speakers in the back. Speakers were a big thing then. I don't know if they still are. Yeah, eight-track. I thought eight-tracks were great. This was, this was before cassettes really took off. You people, Half you people have no idea what I'm talking about. You've never seen an eight-track. You... You youngsters. All right. Anyway, here's a 70s mashup, and then I'll go right into the, the conversation with Steve. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you're doing well. Catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Well, I never been to Spain. I kinda like the music See the ladies are insane there And they sure know how to use it They don't abuse it Never gonna lose it I can't refuse it Meet me in the middle of the 
me hear you say everything's all right. Let me smell the moon in your perfume. It's, uh, what is it today? January 2nd. 2nd. Yeah. 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 Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Chris. I'm here with uh, Dr. Steve Herman, a PhD in counseling psychology, a specialist in uh, child sex abuse. Uh, is that accurate? Child sex abuse evaluations, evaluations. like how, how people evaluate those cases. Yeah. How did you get into that? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. It's kind yeah. of a long story. So Nobody goes into grad school sort no. of aiming for that. No, they? no. My uh, original interest was in um, health psychology, so I, I did work with cancer patients and, uh, and also career counseling. But the reason I got into child sex abuse was well, a few things. One was I was, you know, my, there were family members who were involved in cases of uh, false allegations of child sex abuse. Oh, right. And I just saw uh, what a disaster these cases are. Uh, for people and how um, how unbelievable it is what people will believe in these cases, you know. And then I started uh, reading about the history of this in the U.S. So you might remember back in the 1980s, we had these like big daycare oh, yeah. sex abuse unbelievable cases. Unbelievable stuff yeah. where the Satanism yeah. and children being led into the fields yeah. and yeah it was absolutely incredible yeah they 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 were like the the biggest one was the McMartin daycare was that case. in Minnesota or somewhere up there there was one in Minnesota I mean they were all over the place uh-huh. but the biggest one was the McMartin daycare in Manhattan Beach California uh-huh. so what happened in that case was a kid like a four-year-old kid comes home from this daycare and uh says something to his mom, like, but, you know, the teacher, I, I, I don't know, it was some ambiguous statement, like the teacher touched me or something like that. So that one ambiguous statement set off a whole reaction, which was the kid, and the mother became, you know, suspicious. Turned out later she was schizophrenic. Right. Um, so anyway, she took the kid to the police, and the police took the kid to this social worker named Key McFarlane, and she was just convinced, you know, that this kid was abused. And so she started interviewing him in a very suggestive and leading way, right. feeding him information. By the time she was done and, and the police were done, 200 children in that daycare, I mean, this was a big daycare, had accused the owners, this family, the McMartin family, the Ray, Bucky McMartin, the mother, grandmother, all of them, of... Uh, making the kids play naked movie star games, torturing them in tunnels underneath the daycare, 
taking them to outer space, you know, killing babies taking at the daycare. Them to outer space. All kinds of crazy things. Yeah. And as in all of these daycare cases, no parent had ever seen anything. You know, they're in and out of this daycare all day. Right. No one had ever seen anything. No child had ever complained of anything before they were interviewed or described any abuse. But the people involved were just so willing. They were willing to believe the unbelievable. In fact, they, the more unbelievable it is, the more people sometimes believe it. Right. So what happened was um, the McMartin family, uh, you know, they, they investigated this case for seven years. It took seven years for resolution. They spent a lot of time in jail waiting for trial for, for that. And, you know, they threw urine at this old lady and they Beat, they beat them up, you know, because people who are child molesters yeah. get, get a bad time in prison or right. Jesus with jail. So this prosecution of the McMartins was the most expensive prosecution in U.S. history. It cost more than the O.J. Simpson really? prosecution. Yeah, in adjusted dollars. It was like $15 right. million dollars over the seven years. There was not a single conviction, and there were... They were either acquitted or there was a hung jury on few, a few charges. I think they retried them. There was never a conviction. Uh, and then there was a whole series of these cases because people believed that there were these massive uh, conspiracies right. of pedophiles who were doing ritualistic satanic abuse and killing babies. And there were these... You'd see these things on the news, you know, these people in, in, in reporting live from the church graveyard. They're digging, you know, the police are digging. Oh, they found a bone. It might be a baby. Oh, no, no, it's a raccoon bone, you know. And they never found a single dead baby. They, they never found any evidence that there were any massive conspiracies. Of course, there are people who abuse children in horrible ways, but not in this conspiracy yeah. Uh, way that, that people believed at the time. So this, so what happened was there was a series of these cases and um, psychologist Stephen Cece is probably the most famous one, began to wonder, you know, why were these kids telling all these stories, these unbelievable stories? And so they started doing experiments to, to you know, interview kids in leading ways and see how you can influence. They found it's actually quite easy to get children to make, you know, report what you want them to report. And even, they even develop false memories for things that never right. happen. And you can't tell the difference. Well, children are mystical beings, yeah. you know? I mean, we all are, but they, they are to a greater extent. They haven't learned to sort of filter that stuff out. Yeah. Uh, so it's so easy to plant an idea. Here we are, I, you know, the end of the year, everyone, I, one thing I've been reading recently is this ongoing debate about whether or not to tell your kids that Santa Claus exists, <laughs> you know? So I the, had that with my kid, right. the same problem. <laughs> right. So, I mean, these are the same people that, that you're relying on to throw other human beings in prison? Yeah. These yeah. Kids who, you know, believe in the tooth fairy? What, yeah. what the hell? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the McMartins were not convicted, but lots of other people were. And they spent yeah. 10 or 20 years in prison before some of these exactly. cases were overturned. I remember cases of, of you know, a, a, a child who was convinced that her grandfather had satanically raped her and all this stuff. And the grandfather goes to prison and... Then 20 years later, the, the adult woman realizes it was all a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And what a horrible thing to live with that you yeah. sent your grandfather to prison. Yeah. You know, it's like turning him into the Nazis or yeah. something. Yeah, it, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So what is the 
I mean, I've actually got a little bit of personal experience with with this. Uh, I know a guy, a a good friend of mine, who was accused of raping his girlfriend's younger sister. And this was in California as well. And uh, it was was one of those situations where she was in therapy and mentioned that she'd been sexually abused to the therapist and then the therapist had to call the cops, right? And did. And so the cops show up suddenly and this uh, young woman is being asked who, who raped you. And she just pulled this guy's name out of, out of the oh, air. yeah. Her yeah. older sister's boyfriend, yeah. probably because she had a crush on him yeah. or something, yeah. right? I'm sure it was the uncle or the father or someone that she was afraid to name. Yeah. And this guy went through years of legal bullshit, despite the fact that he wasn't in the country at the time that yeah. this happened. Yeah. And he had the, you know, the documentation to prove it. When she claimed that this had happened, he was not even in the United States. And still, his mother had to mortgage her house yeah. to pay the lawyers. Yeah. It, it's a witch hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know... It, it, it's terrible being convicted of one of these crimes and being sent to prison. But even like people like this who were never convicted of anything, like the McMartins, I think Ray, Mc, Ray McMartin spent seven years in prison waiting for trial. Yeah. So he's never convicted of anything. Right. Um, and he getting later, released is not justice. I hate when I hear this, yeah. justice was done. He, the exonerations. You know, 20 years later, he was, <laughs> DNA test proved justice was, that's not justice. Yeah, yeah. That's not justice. You make me 24 years old again, yeah. then we'll talk about justice. Yeah. Until yeah. then. Yeah, because you interviewed a guy who had been exonerated, right? Oh, for, he killed his, they said he killed his mother. Right, I remember he was that. like 26 years in prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That guy was amazing. He amazing. was like, had yeah. such a positive attitude about, about things after he got out. Yeah, although, you know, what he basically said was, what what option is there? Right. You know, either you go Buddha on this, yeah. or you're just so angry well, you burn out. He was one of the, the, you know, the lucky ones. A lot of guys who get out in these cases don't do so well. You know, they've grown up in prison, and yeah. they're not ready for the, the outside world. You ever see Sling Blade? Yeah, of course. What a movie. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Anyone out there who has not seen a film called Sling Blade, get it. Watch it. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. There's no other film like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we were talking about how you got into this. So, so there was this uh, sort of a frenzy, a storm of these right. cases. Right. And so, so that set off a, a, a whole bunch of interest in psychology and, you know, how did this happen? They started doing experiments and... You know, as a result of those cases and this uh, hundreds of studies that people did, we've learned a lot about memory and false memories mm. and, and interviewing and all these, you know, all of this basic knowledge as, as a result of this. But th- the problem is that these cases are still happening, you know, um, maybe not on the massive scale of the McMartin case, but in child custody cases, you know, yeah. when someone makes an allegation of sexual abuse, that's the way to, you know, end any child custody dispute. Yeah. And, um, you know, you don't hear about it so much in the papers, but people's lives are still being destroyed by this. And then, you know, of course, the, the other side of it is that uh, child sex abuse is also a horrible crime. And the problem is, how do you distinguish the true and false cases? And so we rely on, you know, social workers, um, many of whom have no training in social work. They're not really social workers, they're case workers. They go and interview these children, 
and um, they're making these decisions that can change people's lives in, in terrible ways. And they're based on hunches and guesswork. Like, do you think the child's telling the truth or not? Another thing we know from psychology is that we're very bad lie detectors. You know, people are almost, on average, no better than flipping a coin at yeah. guessing, you know, who's telling a lie and who's telling you the truth. And even with children, we can't do very well at that. So, yeah, so... Um, that's what I focus on. So I, I go around talking to psychologists and judges and attorneys about this and about the limits of um, expertise in these cases. You know, that, that my main sort of message is that we rely too much on the judgment of social workers and even psychologists in, in these cases uh, as a substitute for evidence you know, as a substitute for the kind of things that you normally need to convict someone of a crime. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, I met a guy maybe a year and a half ago. He, he contacted me because um, he wanted me to be in this film he was making called American Sex Offender. And he was doing a Kickstarter thing, you know, to raise some money to do the film. And he approached me because he said, like, if I could do an interview with you, because I'm, you know, have some notoriety or whatever, right? He thought that would give him leverage to raise some money. So I said, okay, sure, because I heard his story. His story was literally in the choir, school choir, virgin, 16 years old. No, 18 years old. He had just turned 18. And um, he met a girl online, Texas. Met a girl online. Texas. <laughs> tells you all you need to know yeah, right Texas. there, doesn't it? Yeah. Stay away from that state. <laughs> Man, um, except for Austin. Except we, for Austin. We all right. love Austin, but <laughs> right. it's still in Texas. You, you, people in Austin, you just got to get your city out of there. Like, put it up on, you know, rollers and just roll it somewhere else, and we'll love you even more. But anyway, uh, so she, uh, she was sexually active. He was a virgin. They flirted online, whatever. And she said, you know, hey, come over. My mom's at work. Come on over, and we'll have fun. So he went over. They're having sex. First time this guy's ever had sex in his life. Mother comes home, catches them, loses her shit, calls the cops. The rest of his life, this guy's a registered sex offender. Yeah, yeah. He had seven years of probation. That he never had to go to prison, but seven years of probation. And he told me every week he had therapy, group therapy, with guys who had raped babies. Yeah. Guys who had, I'm, I'm lowering my voice because Steve's son is in the next room, um, who had done horrible, horrible things. And every week, the, the, the session began, them sitting in a circle, this sort of AA model, and he had to say, my name is, I forget his name, um, and I forced my penis into an unwilling 16-year-old girl. Wasn't true. Yeah. Wasn't true. Yeah. But he had to lie as part of his yeah. thing. And every time he moved, he had to go and introduce himself to the neighbors, and he couldn't get jobs, and, and he is wearing the scarlet letter Died of a heart attack at 31. Yeah. He's gone now. Yeah. So what is going on in this country? There are communities of these of guys, sex offenders, yeah. living in the swamps of Florida. Well, Miami, that because they have these laws that they can't live near a school. Right. right. Or within a certain distance. And the only place in Miami that's more than 1,000 feet from a school is this underpass on a causeway. Uh, going from you know Miami to one of the islands, and so there's a hundred sex offenders living in tents yeah. in this 
underneath this causeway because that's the only place they're allowed to live, yeah. and they don't let them move any place. Right. You know, they can't move to another part of the state. Nobody wants them. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. You know, the other thing is, the other, the other thing is uh, about sex offenders is in a lot of states, um, I'm not sure about Oregon, but in a lot of states, when they finish their sentence, they are evaluated by, a, by psychologists or psychiatrists who determine if they are at a risk mm. uh, of reoffending, and they can be indefinitely committed. Uh, you know, held right. against their will in a in a locked facility uh, until some psychologists decide that they're they're no longer at risk. But the problem is, we can't predict who's a risk. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, that we've we've singled out this single crime. You know, why not do the same thing with murderers or any right. any crime? Right. You know. Um, but we've singled out sex offenders, and we're relying on psychologists to predict who is at risk of reoffending and and these predictions are very poor. So has this vehemence, this fury, this legal fury that's been directed against the McMartins and and my friend and you know all these people we're talking about. Has that same legal fury been turned on the Catholic Church? Um you know the Catholic Church from my understanding, I'm not an expert on it, but they they covered up a lot of these cases. You know, they they do have some responsibility in these cases. Like they, there's a good movie. I think it's called See No Evil, um, about this one priest father. Uh, I forgot his name. He was a priest in California who, you know, raped hundreds of children. And the church moved him around. You know, they they knew what was going on and kept doing it over and over. Yeah. So finally, he was sentenced to like seven years in prison. He gets out, and the church pensions him off in Ireland without telling anybody. Oh, know. and then he rapes kids in Ireland. No, he didn't rape anyone, no. but, but he agreed to be in this documentary, you know. <laughs> He's, it's really interesting because he, he was an intelligent guy, but yeah. a psychopath, you know, he didn't understand the effect that, that this had on his victims. So in the movie, he's like writing letters saying to his victims saying, let's get together. I, I want to apologize, you know, we should get together. And then in the documentary, you see the victims reading these letters and just like aghast, like yeah. that they just want to kill this guy, yeah. you know? And he just didn't understand the, the gravity of what he had done. So after the documentary, it turns out he had been buying crayons in some store, you know, he had to go underground because people recognized him in Ireland. And then a couple of years later, he was arrested for child pornography in Ireland. So went back right. to jail for a couple of years. Uh, you mentioned child pornography. Something I've been thinking about. Well, a couple of things I've been thinking about. And and I should mention um, from the get go here, um, because of your work, you work with uh, with judges and courts, and you need to be careful what you say publicly. And we talked about before I turned on the the recorder. We talked about whether or not to use your real name or go oh, anonymous yeah. and all That's that. That's no problem. You wanted to use your name, yeah. but. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of questions that you can't possibly answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, don't ask those questions. So probably, but they're really good questions. I mean, they're the you know the questions that come to mind. You can try. You can well, try. Yeah, yeah. How about if you just say you know no answer? Um, okay, two things. One, there's a researcher, a sex researcher in Canada. I don't remember his name. I think he's in Toronto or Montreal, and he's he argues that the research indicates that. Uh, pedophilia is best understood as a sexual orientation. 
You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, I've heard that too. Right. Yeah. So it's not a criminal behavior. I mean, it can be. A, it is a criminal behavior because we've defined it as such. But uh, from the perspective of the pedophile or, or the pederast, right? Pederast is someone who acts on it. Pedophile is someone who feels it. Pedophile, right? yeah, it's, it's someone who's attracted, sexually attracted right. to prepubescent Which children. isn't illegal. It's not illegal to be attracted to no, someone, right? No, no. It's illegal to act on right, it. Right, right. Okay. Um, so from, from the perspective of the pedophile, it, for us to, to demonize that, perspective is in a way as misguided or um you know history will look back on us and and think we're ridiculous as uh, making homosexuality illegal was right a, a homosexual can't decide well, i mean it's just like what you talk about in sex at dawn you know i mean there are cultures and uh, like in a- ancient greece uh there, there was a whole... I'll uh, cross that off my list of <laughs> questions not to ask. There, there was a whole, you know, uh, culture <laughs> yeah. of older men and, right. and younger men right. uh, who, who had sex. And, and also in some uh, uh, Polynesian or Pacific cultures, sure. this, was, this was not uncommon. So, um, but in our society, of course, uh, this is uh, considered uh, very heina- heinous or heinous yeah. Yeah. crime and... And so we uh, we do demonize you know pedophiles, and you're right. Pedophilia is just the sexual attraction to children. So um, I think there are some pedophiles who remain celibate, you know, their whole life. And people can do this. I mean, some Catholic priests remain exactly. celibate their whole life. Well, and and I've heard it argued that a lot of men who become Catholic priests do that because they recognize that their innate orientation is toward pedophilia and they choose to become a priest as a way to neutralize that. Yeah, I haven't heard that, but that may be true. And, you know, the the, the tragedy, though, is that if you don't want to become a priest, there's no institutional support for celibacy. And I think you even mentioned this on one of your podcasts that if you're a pedophile, you can't get help. That's that's where because I was going you, next. Yeah, if yeah, you go to a, if you go to a therapist and you say, "Look, uh, I, I'm living in this house with children, and I'm afraid of doing something," they have to report you. Yeah. Otherwise, they risk you know they risk going to being convicted of serious crimes in some states. Yeah. Yeah. So some countries have addressed this. I think Germany, in Canada, or yeah, some yeah. countries have programs yeah. where. Um, people can get uh, therapy without yeah. being, you know, without exposing themselves right. necessarily to legal sanctions. Yeah, it's. I mean, is there another example of of a crime where someone who's afraid they're going to commit it can't go to anyone for help to to help them not commit it? You know, I, I can't think of another situation. I haven't. I mean, you know, if you're afraid you're going to kill someone well or i mean rob a bank or th- therapists do have uh, an obligation in it's not as clear as the one for child abuse because it's not always caught you know it's not right. always in the laws right. but if your client tells you that they're going to go out and kill their girlfriend right if then, they truly believe there's danger yeah, then, yeah. then you have an obligation uh, if you yeah. think it's you know but i mean an- anger management that's a huge reason to go to therapy yeah right you know yeah. so if, you know why not sexual behavior management? Yeah. You know, sex sex uh, addicts are you know that's fine as long as you're not. Now the other thing I was thinking about is I'm sure you're familiar with this. The societies in which uh, 
you know, like when the internet sort of uh, moved into different societies and pornography became freely available, uh, reported rape cases went down significantly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think with no exceptions, which makes me wonder if there isn't a socially constructive role for for child pornography that's, you know, uh, cartoons that's, you know, not involving actual or children being victimized. they have, like, digital... There, there's, there's legal problems, like, can people be convicted for having digitally, you know, f- fictional images you of children? You stick someone's face on someone else's yeah. body or something, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know about that. You know, I, I, I think you could probably also argue that um, people seeing images of child people having sex with children could actually stimulate their Well, if that's true, then fantasies. shouldn't we uh, abolish all murders in movies? I mean, you know, that gets back to one of the central debates of Hollywood, right? Yeah, and I'm not really an expert on, on that area. I, th- I know there's, like, lots of debate about whether violence on television leads to more violence or not. I mean, that debate is kind of silly considering we have, uh, you know, all these guns and people shooting each other. I mean, compared yeah. to other countries, yeah. we, we have so much violence that could be actually addressed. And also, violence isn't an innate orientation, right? If what we're talking about is, you know, if, if we agree with this researcher in Canada, which I, I don't know enough about it to know how strong the argument is. Oh, but- I, I think, you, you know, another interesting thing about child sex abuse is a lot of child sex abuse is not committed by pedophiles. So, in families, when an uncle or father or somebody abuses a child, a lot of times it's more, uh, you know, crime of opportunity. Like they get drunk, the kid's sitting on their lap. And, you know, I've read a lot of cases like that where right. where people have inadvertently uh, begun to sexually abuse children. Right. Um, so those people, those people are often not primarily attracted to children. Uh, you know they don't they don't show the you know on tests like those those penile plethysmographs. Yeah. they don't yeah. show the you know reactions to um child pornography that pedophiles do should, and those people are the pedophiles are the ones who abuse hundreds of children right the familial opportunistic um abusers often only have one victim right right we should uh, clarify the the pl- how do you pronounce that plethysmograph, plethysmograph. i've written it but i've never pronounced yeah. it <laughs> is a device that measures genital blood flow in men. So they show um, images or videos to men and see what uh, stimulates uh, genital blood flow and that sort of... It's like a sexual lie detector or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, this this is such... um, I mean, I, I admire you for wading into this because this is about as charged as any subject in American it is. society. It's very, days. and it's very polarized in the profession, you know, within psychology and social work. So there's these bitter arguments about this between people who see themselves as uh, protectors of children or right. child advocates who, right. who, to exaggerate their position somewhat, are basically saying that we should believe what children tell us. They have no reason to lie. Well, this comes right into the the rape culture arguments that are going on now, right? Where a a lot of what what I've read of the sort of hardcore feminist critique is we should believe victims, default. 
which goes against the innocent until proven guilty, of course. Yeah. Uh, Not alleged victims. <laughs> we, right, we right, victims. exactly. Of the, course, if they're, they're a victim, victim yeah, then, believe then we them. believe them. Yeah, right. That's sort of circular. But, yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, these things falling apart, like this UVA thing, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, it sort of erodes the foundation of American justice system of, you know, you got to prove someone's guilty. Oh, yeah. I mean, what's going on in colleges where these, you know, um, groups of faculty and students are getting together and making judgments about date rape uh, yeah. and, you know, sometimes ruining. There was that guy at Yale or Harvard who, did you see that? That he, he wrote a description of what had happened to him as a result of one of these uh, cases where they never concluded that he had done anything, but he lost these internships, he yeah. lost his Rhodes Scholarship, stuff like that as, yeah. as a result of it, and lost job opportunities because they heard about it. I don't know if you remember, but uh, I interviewed Dan Savage on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And just before I met with him, I, I'd been reading about this case of a guy who, um, he was an editor of, a, of, I think, Scientific American uh, Online or something, and he had helped all these women get positions and was like a big champion of bringing women into scientific writing and all this. And essentially his career ended because a woman accused him of of vaguely inappropriate behavior. I think like as far as it went was he'd invited her up to his room to go over some drafts. And then later she thought, well, maybe, wait, was he coming on to me? And then it sort of snowballed. And she wrote this thing. And, and in her essay, she said, he never did anything that was clearly inappropriate. I don't even really know if he was trying to seduce me, but he made me feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. And this guy lost wow. his job and his career and, I don't know, yeah. maybe his marriage. Yeah. What the fuck is going on? Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, here's another aspect of that. If you look at the penalties for child sex abuse, um, people often get more years in prison than if they murder a child. Yeah. And, in fact, the Alaska legislature addressed this. They said, yes, this is what we want. We want stronger penalties for child sex abuse than for child murder, and they had a whole, you know, justification for it in some letter that that they wrote. So you're better it. off killing the kid. Yeah, I, I mean, as, as some I don't remember the details. Like, it's child sex abuse lasts longer, and you know the effects of it go on. If you kill them, I guess they don't suffer so much for their whole life because their life is over. I don't know. All right. Well, I, I don't mean to make light of this. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. God it's knows. a very serious topic. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, that makes me think about bestiality laws. How is it that you can have, you can raise animals that you can slaughter and eat and skin and make shoes out of, but if someone catches you having sex with the goat? You know, it's all the stuff you talk about in Sex at Dawn. It's, it's cultural, um, cultural traditions, inheritances, beliefs, uh, disgust, like that great example you have about, you know, disgusting food and how one food that feels viscerally disgusting in one culture is, you know, yummy in another culture. Oh, the witchetty grubs. Yeah, Yeah. that's what it is. You know, um, for example, there's no evidence that uh, child sex abuse is any more harmful to to kids than physical abuse or emotional abuse or neglect. But we focus all of our efforts on the sex abuse cases, which are only about 10% of the cases that are reported to Child Protective Services. Yeah, you can yell at your kid and tell him he's an ugly little idiot every day, and yeah. you'll be fine. Yeah. It's, 
it's is it is this a, sort of the the uh, distilled expression of American anti-sexualism? Well, it's not just America. You know, it's uh, other countries have the same. Really, is, is it as bad? And well, I mean, there, in there been, like like in the UK, they had a chi- child sex abuse hysteria with satanic, you know, abuse and. Um, oh, the thing with the, the Arab men in Cornwall or something? No, no, not that's a more recent one. These yeah. are more in the past, yeah. um, but things where people were getting hysterical and people lost their jobs and went to prison and things like that. And you know, it's the same thing. There was a case in France like this in you know, like five years ago in Outreau. I've read stuff about these sort of satanic sex rings in Europe of uh, child uh, sex slavery and involving, you know, upper level, high-level politicians and things like this. Have you heard anything about this? Not much. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the, the things that were going around in the 80s, you know, where people suspected politicians and, you know, uh, pillars of the community of being involved in these in these pedophile rings yeah the satanic abuse rings i i I don't know if there are any uh real cases like that but one of my um you know heroes ken lanning who was a fbi agent who investigated he was in charge of all the investigations of the satanic abuse cases and he he was by no means a sex offender advocate but he said you know in all these cases hundreds of cases that he investigated they never found evidence of conspiracies they did they did find cases where children were abused in horrible ways including something that you know might have some religious connotation or something, but those were almost all single individuals doing it. There were never any conspiracies that right. that people believed that, that there were. Um, but it, it, it's it's the you know it's people's obsession with sex and and, and in a, in a negative way that uh, is part of what drives this. Uh, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that—that that certainly seems to be, from my perspective, that makes the most sense. I mean, the witch trials, right? The the Salem witch trials. Were yeah. The, I mean, it's the easy uh, parallel to make, but that was very much about sex. They were women who were sexually empowered in some way and had yeah. to be eliminated. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the harder yeah. thing about child sex abuse is, unlike witchcraft, is that it does happen. You know, people a lot of like one, one in five uh, children are sexually abused, you know, before age 18 in really? some way. But, you know, another problem is like how you define sexual abuse. So yeah. the term sexual abuse covers everything from fondling to rape. Yeah, and, and also age distinctions, right? Yeah. In some cases, it's if one person's two or three years older, yeah. that's enough. If yeah. in others, they have to be over 18. Or if, if two kids who are 12 years old have sex, they're both sex offenders. Yeah, or, yeah. or even sexting. You know, these yeah. kids who send They're child photo- pornographers. Right. Of their, they're sending of themselves. pictures of themselves. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, under the law, they can be prosecuted for pornography and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, there are uh, good things happening, you know, in, yeah. in the U.S. and other countries. Um, I think, funnily enough, I think in some ways the courts are out ahead of the experts in the field, you know, the people who do these evaluations, the, the social workers mm. and the child protection, because they're becoming more aware of the dangers 
of, of these cases. There, there was an important case in the U.S. Supreme Court a few years ago um, where this guy in Louisiana, Kennedy was his last name, was sentenced to death for child molestation. So the eight states had death penalty um, provisions for some types of child molestation, and Louisiana was one of them. So the case made it to the Supreme Court, and they overturned the conviction. And in fact, they said that um, people should not be given the death penalty for child sex abuse. And they, they had various reasons for that. But the one that interested me was that they said there was a special risk of wrongful execution in these cases. So, so they, were, they were, and they cited the psychological literature saying that children can develop false memories and, and if there's no other evidence, there's a risk that people can be uh, convicted. They said, so you have to, we have to stop this. It's too dangerous. Not to mention the special risk in the jury or the judge, right? Yeah. In a case like this, I, I think the, the impulse toward retribution is accentuated. Yeah. And, you know, I, one of the things, as I said, that really struck me in these cases uh, from the 80s is people, jurors' willingness to believe the unbelievable or to somehow explain it. Like one kid in one of the cases said that he had been taken to outer space in a spaceship and abused in outer space. That was just one of the many weird claims. And so uh, the prosecution produced a picture of a playground nearby that had something that looked like a spaceship. And they said, well, maybe, you know, it happened here. And that was enough. They convicted, <laughs> you know, the person. I mean, they just yeah. overlooked all the inconsistencies. Yeah. You, you allude, alluded to something earlier, um, you know, how uh, physical abuse or other kinds of abuse could be uh, just as damaging in the long term as sexual abuse. Um, what do you think about the the literature that seems to suggest that m most, if not all, of the psychological trauma associated with this comes from the society's denunciation of it? In other words, I'm not. I have to be careful how I say this. I'm not saying that you know, someone who is victimized and physically traumatized as a child isn't innately hurt there. But there are situations that happen between people of different generations that are not themselves innately hurtful. Well, like ancient Greece, for example. For example, you know, or the South Pacific, as you mentioned. Traumatizing. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's that when the kid says, you know, refers to it and then everybody loses their shit, that that is when the trauma takes place. Yeah, I, I, I don't totally... I mean, I don't agree with that completely because, you know, the, part of it is lump, lumping everything together. You know, right. a violent rape of, right. of a child is much different than fondling. But but even yeah. fondling, you know, like, you know, this whole, you were talking about the repressed memory uh, therapy that was so popular in the 90s where people would go to therapists and say, you know, I have these disturbing dreams, I'm being chased. And you know, by the end of it, they think that their father was raping them, they were, they were pregnant. And yeah. some people have, uh, have won some famous lawsuits against these therapists, because this ruined their lives. Some of these people end up in mental hospitals and you know, had suicide attempts as a result of this uh, iatrogenic, you know, yeah. psychiatrist-produced illness that was yeah. created. But, um, so here's an interesting thing, you know, um, um, what's his name? Um, 
Richard McNally at Harvard has you know, come up with sort of an explanation for repressed memory, because there really is very little scientific evidence that people can repress traumatic memories, you know, push them out of consciousness and not remember them until later. Mm. Um, despite hundreds, a hundred years of people looking to, you know, verify Freud's theory, he was the first one right. who came up with this. There, there really is very, there's, you know, very little evidence that this is, this happens, or if it does, it's very rare. But, what does happen, which is kind of interesting, I think, is you know someone's five years old, and their father fondles them. You know, they play a game, they 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 have sexual contact. That's not painful, and the kid may even enjoy it. You know, children experience sexual stimulation, and they may enjoy making their father happy. Right. And then, uh, just like many other things, they forget it because it didn't make an impression on them. They didn't right. know what it was. You know, so then, 20 years later, they're watching something on TV, and just like we remember anything from our childhood, all of a sudden this, this memory comes back to them. But then, when they remember it, it's extremely traumatic because it means that their relationship with their father was not what they thought it was that he was willing to do this to them. He was willing to exploit them for sexual gratification. So it's very traumatic. And then the next question is, well, if it's so traumatic, how did I forget it? And yeah. that's where repressed memory comes in. But you don't really need repressed memory. Normal remembering and forgetting, I think, explains most of these cases. And then when you, when you look, some people have done research looking at kids who have experienced verified traumas like witnessing a parent being murdered, being in the hulk yeah. in, in concentration camps, or even sexual abuse. And almost none of those people actually forget these memories. And no Holocaust survivors forget their childhood you know, in, in the concentration camps, or kids who witness murder, parents being murdered, things like that. So despite that, this, uh, this meme of repression remains you know, very common in our society, largely because of Hollywood. It's such a convenient plot device to uh, you know, have someone forget something and gradually remember it through flashbacks. It's in so many movies and um, therapy movies. God, that would be a great book, wouldn't it? To look at how ideas that work really well in film have become part of the accepted fabric of reality. Yeah. You know, only because they work well in film. Yeah, and that's one of them. I think that that explains why so many people still believe in repressed memories, despite the fact that no respectable memory researchers, people who do research on memory, uh, endorse that. So it's not a, a standard part of PTSD that, that the memory is, is buried? And PTSD is the inability to forget trauma. Right. That's a very real, you know, that's a real disorder that lots of people have it. What they would love to do is be able to forget the memory right. and they can't. Right. It's a good in point. P it's the PT opposite. Yeah, in PTSD, yeah. like in, in some traumatic experiences, um, people's awareness becomes very focused and so they may not be aware of some peripheral details that are happening. Right. And so they don't remember it because it was never encoded in their memory. That's different. Mm. Not being able to remember something that was never encoded. Right. Or um, some of the repressed memory cases seem more like amnesia cases, like they had a brain injury or something yeah. like that. A lot of them can be explained yeah. that way. There's very few, uh, you know, there, there's no 
empirical research studies that really provide support for this idea of repressed memories. Yeah. In my opinion, I mean, there's some that thought that they did, but I think if you look at them more closely yeah. and, and carefully, you, you can see that there are better explanations for what they what they found. And you the know, most careful studies don't find it. You you referred to something else earlier, which is a huge a huge landmine that I I fear to tread anywhere near. But what the hell? What We've the gone hell? this far. Let's go for it. <laughs> Um, you said that the victim may have even enjoyed the experience. I, I'm no expert on, on any of this, but it seems to me that one of the most um, sort of toxic elements in this kind of situation, um, sexual uh, crimes, let's say, is that a person can simultaneously be completely unwilling and victimized and experience orgasmic pleasure. Yeah, I don't think there's any, uh, any question about that anymore. We, we know that, that that happens. I mean, men can be raped, too. You know, men can yeah. have orgasms against their will. Um, and, and, and I think, and, and I, I don't have the, the research at hand, but I think... There is probably, if, if there's not research, it's because people are afraid to do it, suggesting that um, a sizable percentage of women who are raped have orgasms. Yeah. I, and I, I, and no, that doesn't yeah. mean it's not rape. No, it, of course. You of know, course. let me be very clear about yeah. that. And, and the only reason I'm mentioning this is that that uh, knowledge, that, that memory of the pleasure is something that corrodes the victim yes. because she somehow doesn't believe she actually was yes, a victim. Yes, of course. I mean, I think that just makes it worse for them. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, to, to have that experience because it just, you know, it, it throws the whole thing into an uh, inexplicable mess. Well, and it, it sets her up against her own body. Yeah. You know, it's like it, it was the rapist and my, and my body against me. Yeah. I mean, I think good rape counselors know about this problem and, you know, talk to people about it. I'm pretty sure it's... it's it should be more public knowledge, Yeah, though, I'm pretty think, sure it's understood know? Because by, think about how, what percentage of, of rape victims don't report it and never see a counselor. Yeah. You know, and I, I wouldn't... Just like be, child sex abuse, I mean, at least probably more than half of it is never reported to anybody. Right. Uh, so so we, we know this by, you know, asking adults, uh, were you ever sexually abused as a child? And... Uh, did you ever tell anyone about it? And a lot of times they say, you're the first person I ever told about it. Right. So w we know that um, about 50% of, of sexual abuse is never reported during childhood. Yeah. Wow. And, and so you mentioned the cultural aspect of this. Of course, you know, my bias is that a lot of this stuff happens because we live in a society that's so um, sex negative and so... Uh, afraid of these things. I, I ranted in some podcast recently. Uh, I don't remember what it was. I guess it was the Catholic Church or something. I was talking about how, um, you know, the refusal to talk about these things creates that shadow area where they can happen. And so, you know, the, the idea that talking about them is somehow enabling them, I think, is the opposite of the truth. Talking about it makes it less likely to happen because now you're able to talk about it. So you'll accuse the person and, you, you know, it comes out at, over Thanksgiving or whatever it is. Um, 
But it, it seems to me like a lot of this stuff happens because we're in a society. Now, is, is it true that most um, adults who sexually abuse children were abused themselves? Um, I think that a higher, you know, it's a higher proportion than in the general population. But I think it's misleading because the vast majority of people who are sexually abused, you know, don't go on to oh, abuse okay. other ones. So right. it's, it's one right. of those retrospective versus prospective problems. Right. Um, and that's something that's hard to explain to people sometimes. But um, you, the way you see this in child sex abuse cases is um, people, like you can find online, even in government-sponsored websites, checklists of things to look for uh, that may, you know, may mean your kid was abused. And the, the things are uh, nightmares, loss of appetite, fear of strangers, um, anxiety, depression, angry outbursts, you know, things that almost every normal kid has in the course of development, or many normal children have. Yeah. And um, so those things are useless. And then parents, you know, they see these things, and, and parents that are hypervigilant or... Um, overly anxious about this can start questioning their children in, in suggestive ways. Like, did somebody touch you? No, nobody touched me. Are you sure? No. And if you ask a kid a question more than once, most kids understand that they gave the wrong answer. Yeah. So they, and then they say, yes. Oh, you know, and what did they do? Did they do this? Did they do that? And so children get all this information about sex, which they, they wouldn't otherwise have from these questions. And they can even develop false memories of things that never actually happened. And then by the time the kid gets into the, the social worker or, or the psychologist or whatever, they've developed a whole narrative or even a, a memory of something that never occurred. And you can't tell if it's real or not, yeah. if, if it's well enough constructed. Um, and this is inadvertent. I'm not saying, of course, parents are not doing this on purpose. Neither was Key McFarlane or these other social workers or police or psychologists they were not involved in a conspiracy to create false allegations. They were trying to help children, and they believed that kids had been abused. And because of confirmation bias, you know, seeing what they already believe, um, they just ignored evidence that wasn't consistent and just kept questioning these kids until they, you know, reported these things. My first um, quarter in, uh, in graduate school, I had a class in uh, addiction studies or something. And the professor, the fir I remember the first class, he said, uh, there were maybe 30 students or something, he said, um, raise your hand if you were, um, or one, if one or both of your parents was um, an alcoholic or a drug addict. About half the class raised their hands. And he said, okay, keep your hands up. The, the rest of you, raise your hand if you were raised in a family that you would consider to be uh, severely dysfunctional. And at that point, everyone in the class except me had their hand up. And he said, okay, the point is you've got your shit to work through. And you bring that shit to the office and, and project it onto your patients. So your parents were alcoholics. You're going to assume everybody's parents were alcoholics, right? So you've got to, like, deal with your stuff before you're going to have a clean lens uh, through which to view other people's traumas. So this leads into my question, which is, you know, you talked about some people in the community you work in who see themselves as defenders of children. 
I wonder how many of those people have personal abuse stories. And I know there's no research yeah, uh, on this. You know, um, I, there is some, there's some, there's conflicting research. So there's some research showing that professionals who were sexually abused themselves are more prone to believe sexual abuse allegations. But my own research with professionals didn't bear that out. Oh, you've you done know? research on this. Yeah, oh, I, really? I did uh, survey studies of, of people who do these forensic evaluations. Right. So it didn't, it didn't bear out. There's much, there's other things that are much stronger predictors of people's willingness to believe abuse allegations. Hmm. So uh, um, female gender is one of them. You know, women professionals are more likely to believe allegations. Um, psychologists are less likely than other types of professionals like ma master's level, or social workers, or bachelor's level. Psychologists tend to be more skeptical of um, child sex because they, they know more about memory and you know these things that we've been talking about and so they know that you know how these how these things could be um, created how false right. memories and stuff can be created what else um, those things are much more predictive of you know people's beliefs than, right. than actual sexual personal experience, experience. I, I think the problem is not so much like what what you were saying like the trauma that people or or their own experience but more cognitive you know more a confirmation bias problem so they they go in thinking we're they go in just assuming that the child is coming to you because they've been sexually abused and then just they interview the child and perceive the evidence through the lens of that belief i think that's much more the problem than people's personal histories mm. um yeah, I, I don't think that personal history is, it plays a large role, it plays some role, but it, it's more cognitive heuristics and biases. Are you familiar with the, this crazy situation with the descendants of the mutiny on the bounty? Do you know what uh, I'm talking Easter about? Easter Island, or it's uh, not Easter Island. It's, no, it's Pit, another Pitcairn one. Island. Yeah, Pitcairn. Pitcairn. Yeah, yeah uh, I just heard a little bit about it. The, the lots of sexual abuse, incest, and so forth in some really remote island. Well, now here's the thing. It, it gets back to what you said earlier, like how do we define things, right? Yeah. It's all about defining your terms. Uh, okay, so people are probably familiar with the mutiny on the bounty. It was this, uh, I don't know if it was a whaling ship or what it was. It was a British ship. Um, they They pulled into an island in the South Pacific, a beautiful tropical island, to you know, get water and fruit and fix the boat, make some repairs and whatever. They were there for a couple of months. And this is one of these islands uh, that is sort of the opposite of 16th century uh, England in sexuality anyway. And um, beautiful, tawny, gorgeous women, happy to have sex with these British guys uh, because there was no sexual shame there, and, and sex was healthy and happy, and everything was fine. These guys had never seen anything like this, right? So while they're fixing the boat, these guys are having a great time. It's beautiful. There's fresh fish. There's pineapples. There's coconuts dropping from the trees. And then uh, Captain, uh, what the hell was his name? Captain, uh, it wasn't Captain Bly, was it? I don't know. No, it was Captain... <laughs> Shit, he was famous. There's this movie, The, the, the Mutiny yeah, the on the Bounty. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, Captain What's-His-Name says, okay, we're you know heading to sea, let's go. 
And they, they're like a day or two out, and the guys are like, fuck this, man. And they mutiny. Um, but their mistake was they didn't kill the captain. So the captain and the officers who... They sent him on a boat, They right? sent him off on, a, on an open boat, right? And they <laughs> rode to Australia. <laughs> Meanwhile, the guys go back to the island. They're like, hey, we're back. And... Um, and so they they hang out on this island, and Captain whatever his name is goes. They row to Australia, and then they go back to England, and then like three years later, they're back with a you know uh, warship. Most of the guys are dead by now. They've like fought. England you know. has a long memory, don't they? <laughs> yeah, three but the guys later. were already dead before yeah. the warship got there. The guy they killed each other. They, you know they just. You know, they, they weren't prepared to, uh, they weren't prepared for paradise, yeah. essentially, you know. And, um, but their descendants lived on. So here we are uh, now, in the current day, and this island is ruled by New Zealand, even though it's thousands of miles away from New Zealand, but it's part of New Zealand's, you know, protectorate or whatever. Um and it's just sort of happening there. Everything, you know, the New Zealand doesn't really pay attention. Nobody pays attention. They're off there eating coconuts and pineapples. And then someone is in New Zealand and she mentioned something about like the first man she had sex with was, you know, 20 years older than her. And, and it comes to the attention of the legal authorities that she was. 13 and her first sexual experience was with a guy in his 40s or something and they bring charges and they investigate and they find out that this is common practice on this island that um, women when they when they girls when they become women part of this uh, coming of age ritual is that they're introduced to sex by one of the older men on the island now here's the thing that's weird the girls don't consider this rape the women on the island don't consider it rape. Nobody considers it rape, except the New Zealand legal authorities. So all these men, they, they round up all these men and drag them back to New Zealand to, to stand trial. And the women refuse to testify against them because they say, in our culture, that's not rape. That's bringing a woman into womanhood, bringing a girl into womanhood. So it's... it's a, fantastic example of how cultures define these things and that's what it is you know it is what you say it is i mean that's the whole that's one of the main you know messages in sex at dawn basically the, the cultural construction of uh desire and and sexual practices yeah, within, you know, balanced with the sense that there is a biological uh yeah, an unavoidable biological component to it as well, right, of the, the energy. Like I think we quote uh, Schopenhauer says, you know, um, uh, one can choose what to do, but we cannot choose what to feel. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You know, so the feeling is unavoidable. There's going to be a feeling. There's going to be desire. There's going to be hunger. There's going to be all these these things that are sort of built into us. But how we choose to interpret them and... and uh, restrict them or liberate them or whatever is how we use evolution's gift to our species yeah exactly <laughs> you know, this whole reproduction thing and we end up with this great payoff at the end and then you know end up misusing I, I just want to say it. something about sex at dawn because you know i was listening to one of the podcasts a few weeks ago with with a physicist i think it was and 
Physicist. Or, or who, who are you talking to? Some guy who was talking about his book and how how he had made it interesting, or or someone had said that it, it was you know, the subject was interesting, and uh, so many books have made it boring. Anyway, that's yeah. how I've always felt about Sex at Dawn. You know, I've looked at lots of human sexuality textbooks and stuff like that, and they take something that is so interesting and make it boring. It's almost inconceivable they could actually accomplish that. Yeah. And that's what's so great about you know, Sex at Dawn, that it's just so much fun to read, and oh, thanks, it, it, it keeps it interesting. I want to say something else about too. I read that review in the Chronicle by that, that guy, and I, 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 I thought it was hilarious, because the guy is oh, saying, yeah. he's going, oh, Ryan is so full of crap. And anyway, I said this already myself <laughs> in my book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that that's uh, th- that was an unfortunate situation. I, I didn't really know how to deal with that one. That's uh, David Barrish. David Barrish, yeah, 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 in the the Chronicle of Higher, Higher Education. I mean, he he even you know brought up the idea that he was jealous. He, you know, he said at the beginning, I'm, maybe yeah. I'm just jealous. And he is jealous, but the fact that he brought it up doesn't make it go away. <laughs> well, it was it was a strange. It's a very strange review. I. Um, it's because it's not really a review. It's uh, he says the very first line of the review is if if one more person asks me about this book, Sex at Dawn, I'm going to vomit. <laughs> 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 so, you know, and then it gets worse from there. Yeah. I mean, that's the amazing thing. But th- he said he said. I remember vaguely he said, yeah, uh, this stuff about, you know, Namanami. I said that myself in my book 10 years ago. Yeah. After he had said it's all garbage. <laughs> well, see, the, here, okay, a couple of things to say about that. First of all, he, wrote a, he and his wife uh, wrote a book called The Myth of Monogamy. And it's a book I had on my bookshelf. I read it. Uh, it's a good book. And, but it's mainly, it's about animals. It, he doesn't, re- they don't really get into human um, sexuality. Uh, at least in very glancing ways. There's no direct application of, um, but they sort of go through all these bird species and, you know, like, oh, you know, we thought swans were monogamous, but then they, we did the studies with the feather DNA and blah, 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 we and found out penguins. this and the penguins <laughs> and this and that. Um, so it, it's a good book, but I didn't cite it at all. We didn't cite it in Sexaton. And we should have. Citations, right? yeah. We should that's have. Our, that's our academic right. currency. Right, exactly. I'm not an academic, so I don't think that way, right? It never, it really didn't occur to me, like, I really need to find a way to cite this book or I'm going to offend this person or whatever, right? So, and I actually met them. I remember that, yeah. I remember you talking about that. Shortly after in Sex a bar, at, right? Well, it was, in a, it was in a polyamory conference yeah. that I'd been invited to speak at. And they had come in to meet, um, I guess, Dossie Easton is a friend of theirs, one of the authors yeah. of The Ethical Slut. And we shook hands and they said, congratulations on your book. And I, oh, thank you very much. And then they went to dinner. I thought maybe they'd invite me to come along, but they didn't. And they, okay, great. I thought everything was fine. And then that review came out. And the weird thing about it was, like, you know, he accused us of uh, not understanding the first thing about evolution, of um, uh, misrepresenting the, the research, of, you know, like the three or four worst things you can accuse someone of, and didn't supply a single, a single example of any of it. So I just felt like, okay... Sorry. Didn't he say something like, though, I said this myself, this is nothing. First he said, 
this is all wrong and it's nothing new. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that cracked me up. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. If you listen to the podcast, Dr. Barish, I'm sorry. Me I should, too. Sorry. I should have cited you, but I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I, I try to maintain a cordial relationship with my academic adversaries in, in this field. You know, like, like I said, it's a really polarized field. Oh, yeah. But I talk to them, you know. We... You know, they in their articles they they say, "Oh, Herman's dangerous or stupid," but we talk, you know, cordially, not stupid. One guy called me dangerous. I was going to put it in my email signature. I love that. Yeah, dangerous. That's great. Um, but you know, try to be cordial. And most of them, uh, most of the people, you know, we can be cordial. So, are you in like a wing of this? area or are you off on your own or how does that line no up? i mean there's different camps or i guess you could call them camps or perspectives i mean it, it's in some ways it's another example of the divide between clinicians and scientists you know researchers versus clinicians so right. psychologists um and therapists uh have many beliefs and theories and and uh, approaches that they use that have little basis in, in scientific evidence, and there's a, a divide. Carol Tavris talks about this: the, the divide between clinical work and and. Uh, and wh where are you on that? Are you I'm more science. You know, I'm more science oriented. So all the psychological research on memory and things like that, and then there's the people who are the more the clinician researchers, the people who actually do these evaluations, who who are doing you know, what I criticize, what I say we basically can't do, which is listen to a child tell you a story and decide whether it's true or false. Right. I, I'm saying without evidence, without some kind of external proof, we have no ability to do that. We're not lie detectors, and even lie detectors can't do it. Right. Um, so that's the divide. They're, the clinicians are doing it, and so the, they try to do research to support their perspective, but there is no research that really... Uh, there's no research that, that shows that clinicians are able to do this. Mm. Yeah. It's really weird. You know, the, the same thing actually has happened in other forensic areas, like fingerprints. Like oh, people my have, God. People have been relying on fingerprints for years, and it turns out there's no scientific research to back it up. Was it a Frontline? Did Frontline, frontline do a did thing? a great show. That was show. amazing. Yeah, that was that called The Real CSI. Mind. Yeah, I, I think fantastic. everyone should watch that. That is so... I use that in my talks. I yeah. show a little clip from it because it, it, it was it, fascinating. It just showed how... Exactly what you just said. It showed how... These supposed fingerprint experts, by the way, who, who like send away to some diploma mill somewhere to get their degrees, a lot of them, there, there is, they, they look at it and it's a judgment it's call. It's a judgment call. One guy in the, in, the, in the front line thing said, you look at it, you look at the evidence, and then you make a leap of faith. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he was one of the guys in the Mayfield case. So, that, so you remember the bombing in Madrid? Yeah, that a couple hundred people were sure. killed. Yeah. There was no evidence. The police couldn't find it. They had one partial print, so they couldn't find a match in Interpol. They sent it to the FBI, and unfortunately, it matched for the guy Mayfield, who was an attorney oh, in Seattle. Right, I he, remember his that. fingerprint matched, and yeah. they they came into it. He was going to go pick up his kids. They came in his office, handcuffed him, took him to prison, on the basis of this fingerprint, and. Um, the poor guy's in prison, you know, and 
there was no evidence. I mean, there was, he was in Seattle, but you know, when, when people believe something, they can think of a way to just. He snuck across the border, took a private plane, bombed the train, then came back and went back to his little practice. And, right. And he happened to be a Muslim, which was not good for yeah, him either. Yeah. So anyway, he's sitting there in jail. Uh, his lawyer said, "Let's get another fingerprint expert to you know challenge us." So they sent it to this guy who was in the the frontline thing, and he said, "No, this is a match." Oh, really? <laughs> <Their> expert. <laughs> Luckily, uh, the Spanish, you know, authorities a couple of weeks later found the people who were responsible. You know, I'll tell you something. You know, I've lived in Spain most of my yeah, adult life, right? Very interesting thing that happened there. That bombing happened um, in Spain. There's a, a period of uh, where there are no advertisements for three or four days before the election. So there's like a period of calm. People can think with no ads or whatever. And that bombing happened in, within those days. So there was a national election like two days later. And the Partido Popular, which is the uh, like right-wing, Republican, business-friendly, you know, fascist, basically, uh, um, party, uh, was in power. And so that bombing happened, and they said, uh, it's ETA, the Basque separatists, right, who bombed banks and stuff like that. But ETA had never bombed civilians. They always went, they killed police or politicians or, you know, they always very focused in what they were doing. They never just bomb a civilian train or blow up, you know, an airplane or something like that. So it didn't match ETA's um, style. And, um, but anyway, they immediately said it's ETA because, like in this country, the right wing is seen as, you know, the the sort of law and order party and they're going to protect us. Daddy's going to protect us. Um, and the police, I think it was the police chief of Madrid who was like in the middle of the investigation said publicly, we don't know it's ETA. I don't know why they said that, right? Our investigation hasn't proven that. In fact, the type of explosive used and whatever, it's not clear who it is. The people of Spain went apeshit because the government was lying to them. Because the government, that maybe, maybe it was ETA, but you're telling us you know it's ETA. You don't know that. You're lying to us. Fuck you, right? And the Partido Popular had like a two or three point lead when this happened. And people went in the streets, millions of people banging pots. They go, they walk down the street and bang pots with spoons, you know, and um, flip the election. Because you lied to us. And as an American, watching that happen, I thought, how different our countries are. We knew George Bush lied to us. We knew that whole thing getting us into Iraq, a trillion dollars, 10,000 Americans dead and wounded and millions of Iraqis. We knew that was a lie going in. And there was nobody in the street banging pots and pans. And no impeachment. No like impeachment. For, for nobody Clinton in prison. sex with Monica Lewinsky. Yeah, exactly. That was a bigger issue. Right, right. Yeah, that's a big deal. But <sighs> unbelievable. Anyway, what the hell? Why am I talking about that? Tangentially speaking. How did we get into that? Where, 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 where did we, what, what was the exit we oh, went off to get into that? The, you know, how experts overreach and fingerprints. And, oh, fingerprints. And, and people the, deciding that some kid is telling the truth. and The Paul know. Simon song, The Myth of Fingerprints. I love I, that I line. I that one. Oh, it's the boy in the bubble. Uh-huh. Yeah, these are days of, of miracles and wonders. This is the long distance call. Yeah. 
you know, so I think we, myth we, of fingerprints. We, we rely too much on experts. Like, th there's this guy at Berkeley, Philip Tetlock, who's done this great study. Have you heard about this? The one about, he looked at these people that come on TV or in the newspaper, editorials, political pundits, political scientists, they predict what's going to happen, you know. Yeah. Somebody's going to win, the economy's going this way, right. Russia's going to do this. Right. And he, he, he said to himself, you know, these people are never held to account for right. their decisions. If they, right. if they say something and it doesn't come true, either they just drop it or they say, well, I predicted the economy was going to go up, but then... Uh, this crisis happened in the Middle East. Nobody could have predicted <laughs> yeah. that. And, and, and so it kind of yeah. makes you seem like, oh, yeah, okay, he was, he was on the right track, but then yeah. this happened. So anyway, yeah. this guy, Tetlock, said, okay, let, let's, let's look at how accurate these guys are. <laughs> so he, he did this survey yeah. asking people to make predictions about world events, like what's going to happen in the Middle East, where's the economy going, and he sent it to like 200 of these people, including famous... TV people and, you know, economists and political scientists. And um, just like we find in psychology, these people were useless. It, they, they could have flipped a coin and gotten basically the same results, you know, just yeah. slightly better than chance results when you looked over time at how well they predicted, like the stock market and things like that. So... Um, we just... We, yeah. we, we rely too much on these people. We... we put too much faith in them, including me, you know, people like me, psychologists and others who go into court and confidently testify that they know what happened in the past. Um, but, uh, all right, I'm completely with you on that. Uh, every, I mean, I've, I've been in positions of authority uh, in two or three different worlds. And every time I, I reach those upper, upper echelons, I looked around and was like, Jesus Christ, really? These are the experts? You know, like I worked in, in finance in, in Manhattan in the 80s with multi-millionaires. I worked on 47th Street, too, by the way. Really? Yeah, I, my uncle was a diamond dealer Are there. you serious? Yeah, it's so many things. Like, And also, I took that ferry to Skagway and just like, really? all these things. Yeah. Oh, all right. Let's talk about that. Let's forget this. this. <laughs> I worked there on 47th Street. No kidding. For like a year, yeah. All right. Anyway, my, my point is, so so they're getting a doctorate and, you know, whatever, being a New York Times bestselling author, whatever, like, mountains I've made it to the top of, I get to the top and I look around and say, man, this is a bunch of bullshit, right? The, every, I, like everyone else, I thought that when I got here, I'd be surrounded by brilliance. And it turns out millionaires, New York Times bestselling authors – you know, movie stars, whatever elite world you get into, it's just as much bullshit as everywhere else. It's, it's just, it's random. You know, people try to see patterns in things, and a lot of these processes are, are basically random. Yeah. And so, you know, I believe in science. I think we can, we can find out how things work and, you know, general laws and principles, but predicting what individuals are going to do or what's going to specifically happen in yeah. the future or... What happened in the past? Yeah. Was this kid abused? Yeah. Is, is, is beyond the ability of mental health professionals. Now, yeah. There are some experts who do improve with time and become pretty accurate, like well, bookies. It, I mean, it's like <laughs> psychotherapy, right? I mean, every study that's ever been done in different types of psychotherapy has found that none is more Absolutely. effective than the other. What's effective is some therapist yes. individually just have it. 
There, there's certain they've they've like looked at some of the components of of what makes therapy successful, and the, I teach uh, counseling students. You know, I, I'm a t I'm a professor at the University of Hawaii at Hilo, and so I teach them this. You know, I say, look, it it's not what your theoretical orientation is; it's that you have one, because it provides an explanation for you that you can confidently you know, give to your client yeah. so that they can have some hope that their problem can be overcome. Right. And that hope is the most important thing. And yeah. um, the explanation is important. It's not irrelevant. It's important to have an explanation, but which one is not so important. Which brings us to placebo. Yeah. I mean, placebo, the, the, I'm writing this book, as you know, that, and, and there's a religious uh, chapter. And in the religious chapter, at, you know, at the, the danger of giving it away, what I'm trying to argue is that a friend of mine, Andrew Gurovich, who I've yeah, had on like the podcast him. a few like times, him. he said, I always screw up this quote, but he said one time in a conversation, he said, um, of, of course there's a God. He just isn't real. <laughs> you know? I should tell my kid that about Santa Claus. We had a big argument about it. Oh, really? <laughs> Well, I mean, I was teasing him, you know, the, about Santa Claus, but he got very upset that yeah. I, I wouldn't admit that Santa Claus was not real. But then we had an interesting discussion about the importance of magic and belief, and yeah. and, uh, and and he sort of saw the point. Well, that's it. Things can be real and and not real at the same time. Yeah, you know, and it, you're saying with your students, it doesn't really matter what your orientation is; just have one. Yeah, and then. Use it as a way to connect with your client and throw them a lifeline. Yeah. That's what's that's important. That's the important part. And, of it. and that and, and that you sort of need the and fiction, not, not just therapy, but biomedicine. You know, Western medicine. Uh, well, you've talked about this. A, a lot of what we, a lot of what our doctors do, has a lot of placebo effect oh. to it, including surgery. Why are they walking <laughs> around with a stethoscope around their neck? Half yeah. of them never use it. Yeah. Right. It's just to inspire the sense of trust and faith. That's a doctor right yeah. there. Yeah. 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 Which is why, actually, I rebel against people calling me doctor because I have a PhD, right? I don't like it either. I hate it. I, <laughs> I hate had it. the same problem as you. You know, they had taken Steve Herman at gmail.com was taken. So I had to put doctor. I had to come up with something. Uh, and I always regretted putting the doctor in front of it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because then I have to explain it every time. Uh, I, you know, I don't really put much stock in this. But yeah. they took Steve Herman.com. Yeah, I know. I did that on Twitter. And I've heard you do that. People too. give me shit like, "Oh, Chris Ryan, PhD." Ooh, la la. Like, oh, fuck, man. I was new to Twitter. I didn't know. I, yeah. I could have come up with something more creative. Yeah, and then you're stuck with it. Yeah, you know, my wife, who's a real doctor, yeah. uh, has done um, regressive past life therapy. I heard, with I heard you talking about that. You're talking about yeah. that. And and it's a perfect example of what we're talking about. You know. She, I've asked her, like, well, do you believe in this shit? I mean, and she says, it doesn't matter what I believe. All that matters is that the client, the patient or whatever we're calling this person, has a structure upon which to hang these feelings. Yeah. And then you can work with that, you know, whether they were really yeah. an Egyptian, whatever, it doesn't matter. That's why I'm not so much a fan of these devout atheists, you know, Hawkins. Yeah. And, I, yeah. I mean, I kind of admire their their wit and, and sarcasm and everything, but they miss a lot of the point of religion. They miss the placebo effect. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, that it speaks to something, you know, it speaks to people's urge to transcend, yeah. uh, to transcend themselves. And, right. you know, 
it, it, it provides an important function for many people. So yeah, I, I don't like the people who just dismiss religion as a fantasy. In fact, religion is not, you know, the idea that religion is about belief is a very Western view of religion. Right. Like a lot of cultures have no word for religion. It's just part of the way they live. Or Buddha, and, Buddhism, they, yeah. they don't, they say it's, it's not, not a religion. Belief. Right, it's yeah. a way of life. You know, yeah. you meditate, you like give some money to the poor, that's, yeah, yeah, I agree we with you. We came up with this idea that it's about belief in God or this and that. It's it's more, for many cultures, it's more about the way you live and what you do and rituals and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So what what were you doing on 47th Street? And when were you there? This was like right after I graduated from college. I needed a job. Or actually, I started while I was in college. So, so you was, went to Reed yeah, undergrad yeah. here in So I was selling Portland. diamonds, you know, as my part-time job. So I, <laughs> I was at Reed College here, and I... I, I, I would just dressed up in a suit and go downtown and sell diamonds. And I couldn't tell in, anybody what I was Portland? doing. In yeah. Portland? Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, it was a funny job. Like, what, on the street? Like, no, hey, no, hey, to buddy, jewelry hey, stores. Buddy, to jewelry stores. <laughs> so, uh, cut diamonds or raw? Yeah, cut. My uncle was a dealer on 47th Street. Are you, like, from a Hasidic Jewish background? No, 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 no. He was Jewish, you know, he's Jewish, but... Uh, I'm not Hasidic or anything. He was so. What, what was his name? Marvin I mean, Herman. Marvin Herman. Yeah, I, my uncle. Do you remember what uh, building he was in? It was in the middle of the street, someplace. Because that's where I was. I was at, right in the middle of the. It was I, I managed the, the building. Yeah. I managed two buildings. One uh, on two sides of the street. Forty seven uh, was. Uh, 31 West 47th Street, and then the 50 West 30. I don't remember. It was and a, I, I, I was, lived in one of the buildings. I was like 20 years old. So when was this? What year? Um, I went to read like 74 to 79, so it was, was around then, like 78, 79. Uh, you were before me. Yeah. I, I was there in the 85, 6, 7, yeah. in there, yeah. Then I, I moved to um, So were France. you like flying from New York to Portland with a suitcase full of diamonds? Like a little thing in my pocket. Really? Portland, yeah. It was kind of scary. It was like $100,000 worth really? of No shit. So, so he'd like made the sale to the guys and you were just delivering them? No, I would sell them. I was a salesman basically. Really? Yeah. So you'd walk into jewelry stores in downtown Portland. Pull You're in college. My, I had a little you chain. Got a little, you got a little felt <laughs> bag or something? Yeah, a little thing in my pocket with the diamonds in it. <laughs> It wasn't a good job for me because I'm kind of a little messy, you know. You you have to be careful. <laughs> Misplay. Where did I put those diamonds? <laughs> really? Wow, that's a wild job to yeah. have when you're in college. Yeah. And then I lived in France. I, I went to France. I lived there for like four or five years, and I ended up selling jewelry there too. You know, as a your as a uncle job. stuff. No, uh, turquoise jewelry from New Mexico. Turquoise. Yeah. Now that's it. Turquoise is an interesting thing. I've got a friend who's a, he's an amazing guy, really interesting guy. I met him in um, in India, and he sort of wanders around the world, and he he knows stones, so he'll buy stones, and then he like does everything by hand, and he makes these amazing pipes that'll sell for a thousand euros each. That he, you know, with these rare woods and inlays, and you know, anyway, he told me. That turquoise, some French guy 
had invented a system of taking like turquoise dust oh, and I mean, resin. This was the whole thing. You know, we're always arguing: is this the real turquoise or the poudre? You know, the fake turquoise. Yeah, like, the- like you can sell bullshit and call it turquoise now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's a there's a quite a big difference. You know, at least there was. I don't know. Was, this was thirty. 40 years ago. Um, but you could tell the difference by looking at it. Maybe they made better. You know, they're doing better with diamonds now, too. They're harder to tell apart from the fake ones. Well, it's, the cubic zirconium. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if you can't tell the difference, there is none. Well, actually, except they, look the better. Price. they look better than the real ones because they have no flaws. <laughs> right, exactly. That's how you tell the difference. There's no flaw. But now they're putting flaws in them. So, oh, so man. <laughs> So, I mean, there's no value in diamonds other than industrial, you know, drill bits and stuff. There's no value in a diamond. It's set by De Beers, What is value anyway? I mean, what what, what things have intrinsic value? Yeah, well, people say gold has intrinsic value because it's, you know, it conducts electricity better. I don't know. I mean, there's a, yeah, those values are all created. Diamonds was created, you know, purposely by De Beers. Yeah. You know, company they marketed it and controlled the supply to right. make it expensive. But yeah, of course, those things. There, there's there's other minerals that are, and gems that are much rarer than diamonds, but worth almost nothing because just you know because of yeah. the random series. I mean, you don't want to make something very valuable if you can't get a hold of it. Yeah, to sell. So right. they they pick diamonds, which were more you know common. Than so it's other all things. it's all marketing. So yeah. strange. Because yeah. to me, I mean, as far as like uh, gemstones go, diamonds are uninteresting. Pearls, cool, right? Uh, opal, opal's the best. This is really tangential. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not? It's something we, you know about. Um, you know, like to me, the, the most interesting thing is something that is, looks like something you could have found on a beach and polished and there it well, is. Well, look at, what about money? Money is... Oh, money, but, yeah, forget it. That, that, those pieces of paper you know what they have no intrinsic value just because we are willing to exchange them for things like we're willing to do things well i i uh changed a 20 dollar bill at a car wash religion you know that's a religion that's a belief belief. it's all just faith and if you don't believe the whole thing falls apart (laughs) yeah Yeah. i changed a 20 dollar bill at a car wash today and i got 21 dollar coins i didn't even know there were one dollar coins there's two dollar coins too i think really and i went to the guy i said are are this this actual money or are these tokens and he said no that's money that you can spend that okay um, but anyway, uh, did you know opals? Do you know how opals are made? Uh, I was just in Australia. That's where they come from. Yeah, right? yeah a lot of them are in Australia. A thing in Australia. Yeah. So I was in Australia. I went to this opal museum or something, and they explained to me that opals, the way opals are made, it's amazing. You've got like you know all these rock at the bottom of the ocean, right? So there's an earthquake, and the rock shifts, and there are cracks, and and water rushes into these cracks. And then there's another earthquake, and the crack closes. So now this water is trapped under incredible pressure and very high temperatures for millions of years. And that presses and creates opals. And then this rock comes to the surface in Australia, apparently, and they find this, these seams. And so this water turns into this translucent stone that's full of colors 
because it's been trapped in darkness for millions of years. <laughs> now, to a, me, that's a great story. That is cool. <laughs> that's a great story. You know, diamond. I could diamond, give a shit coal, about diamonds. You know, dead, dead plants. Yeah, just... whatever. And it looks like a piece of glass. It looks like somebody got their car broken into. I don't. I don't see the value in that. Anyway, so you're on 47th Street, and you said you you also uh, were in Skagway, Alaska. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny listening to your like the Toma thing and and some of your stories because there was so many parallels. Like I took that. Well, I went to Anchorage and then hitchhiked around, and we you you went from Skagway north. We went the other way, and I hiked over that pass, the Chilkat Pass, into Skagway. Really? And then took the ferry down to Seattle. Wow. So I went the other way. So you flew into Anchorage yeah, and then, dro- and then hitchhiked around, caught a ride back through Toke, and then down. Yeah, and then hiked over to Skagway. Wow! From Canada into the U.S. What was that like? That's a nice hike. That's the I way the you know Gold Rush people went up there. Right. So there's all like these old you know their old junk the line there like broken broken carriages broken wheels and stuff like that. <laughs> that must have been intense. <laughs> yeah. How long was the hike? I think it's like four or five days, something like that. I don't. Oh. Know. It was a long time ago. Do you see any bears? Uh, not up there. I mean, I've run, run into bears in the woods. Yeah. How'd you times. end up in Hawaii? I got a job there at the university there, University of Hawaii. I was actually living in Mexico, and I needed a job. What know? part of Mexico? I was in uh, uh, Valle de Bravo, which is near Toluca. Uh, where's Toluca? <laughs> N- near, like three hours, three hours west of Mexico City. West, okay. Right. Yeah, it was a really nice place in the oh. mountains. Not what you think of, you know, as Mexico because it was at 7,000 feet, so mm. it's pine forests. Do you ever get down to Chiapas and Oaxaca? I love Oaxaca. That's yeah. my favorite place in Mexico. I like Oaxaca, yeah. Most beautiful place. Yeah, Monte Alban. Yeah, mm. I remember your, I liked your story. I've been up there, yeah, too. I didn't spend the night up there, but. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you did a lot of traveling. This was like after undergrad, before grad school, or how'd that work? Well, I did, before I went to grad school, I lived in France for like four years. And, and why, what took you to France? I wanted to travel, and uh, I went over there and just lived in Paris. And I got a job. I met a guy in a hotel. Gave me this job. Did you speak French? Yeah. You did when you went. I learned it. Like I, I took it in college, but then you know, after a year, I could speak pretty well. Yeah. Uh, I need it for my job. That's great. Paris is beautiful. Wow. And then I lived in Rome for a while too. Rome, yeah. another great town. Wow. Yeah. What did you do in Rome? Were you selling turquoise there? I was a disc there? jockey there. A disc jockey. Yeah, for the English language radio station. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's and so I was funny. selling jewelry also. That's great. Because people write to me all the time. Like young dudes yeah, are writing to me all the yeah. time. Like, dude, how, how do you finance this? What do you do? Yeah. So that's why I'm sort of pumping you yeah. on this stuff just to hear another I totally someone else's story. I agree with you about that. I think, I think young people should not jump into jobs or careers. They They... It's so much better to spend your 20s traveling and, you know, seeing a little bit of the world, in my opinion. I mean, obviously, it's not for everybody, but people just become too serious and settled down too early and get, you know, yeah. into the treadmill of life. And then they've got regrets. Yeah. You know, and nobody, you don't want to live with regrets. And, the, and at least for me, and, and apparently for you as well, it worked out this way. Like, anything that I really am going to want to do I'll be better at it if I've traveled for 10 years in my 20s, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to be a rocket scientist. That's not my thing. If that's your thing, then you're on a different track. But 
it's so much better to go to graduate school too when you're you know like I did when I was 29 I went I went back to graduate school because and my students you know I have both uh, young students who just went to got their BA and then are doing their masters and the older ones who've come back right. and the older ones you know they, they're so much they're, they're so much more fun to have as students because they they like they really appreciate it, first of all, you know, yeah. having the opportunity it's to easy. learn something. <laughs> they, they know school is easy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they, they try to get yeah. something out of it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a lot of, it seems like some undergrads, they don't even know why they're there. You know, they just, they just went there because that was what they thought. Maybe they couldn't get a job or they didn't have any other ideas. So they just went to school. Yeah. So you, your advice is uh, if, you're, if you're yearning to go... Just like you, I would, yeah. I would, I agree with you 100 percent on that. Yeah. And, um, and the thing is that people, like a, a lot of times, people are trying to plan it all out from home, and and you can't because you get there. Like you met a guy in Paris in a hotel who gave you a job. It's so di- it's different, you know. I, was, I I like to stay in youth hostels right. when I travel. So I was in Australia and uh, I was in there for a month recently, and I stayed in some of the youth hostels. And now. It's like all organized. They have like tours, you know, like the the backpackers have tours that they go on and it's all sort of more organized. And when I did it, we used to just hitchhike and sleep under bridges and we couch surf by meeting people who invited us to their houses. And that's, it's a different, I mean, it's still nice, but it seems more organized now, like more commercialized uh, experience for these kids. Right. Well, you can always opt out. You can get out out there, yeah. You can opt out. You can say, screw the tour. I'm going to just head out and see what happens. So, And that's the thing. What happens is our stuff you can't anticipate. You can't plan on it. Yeah. So people say, well, how did you finance it? Well, part of it is you find things on the road. Somebody offers you a job as a DJ on the English language radio station, and there you go, you know? One of my yeah. mentors, um, John Crummolt's great professor at Stanford. I, I got my graduate degree at Stanford, so I, I studied career counseling there. And he 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 pointed out that he one of the things he would do is like he'd go talk to a bunch of people. He say, "Okay, how many of you are now doing what you thought you would be doing when you were eighteen? Right. Almost nobody. Right. You know. So he." He, his, his approach emphasizes the role of happenstance in our lives and that it's not something that we should be fighting against but embracing. And, and nourishing, creating space for it, especially yeah. when you're young. Because you yeah. do create, you know, things that seem like luck or happenstance are, are things that you put yourself in the way of. Like if you sit alone in your house, nothing's going to happen to you. But you go out and talk to people and travel, then things happen to you. Yeah. So you have opportunities or things to take advantage. I love that. He calls it the planned happenstance theory of career counseling. That's, a, that's very wise. And his, his whole thing is, you know, we shouldn't be like uh, giving people tests and telling them, okay, you should be an undertaker because you have these interests. Because interests change. You know, you, what he tries to do is... is encourage people to go out and explore things yeah. not to make decisions right. like go explore and open yourself up to to happenstance to yeah. to have good things happen to you you hear these stories all the time of people saying how they got into their career and you know how how it seemed like luck played a very important role 
But then if you look at it more closely, it's because they put themselves in the pl in the place where that luck could happen to them. Right. In lots of cases. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, oh, what, man, I just lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> it wasn't your fault. I jumped my train of thought there. Uh, we're talking about luck, happenstance, creating space for happenstance. I don't know. Traveling. Yeah, traveling. But... Um, well, marriage, we could talk about marriage. It's the same thing. People like, yeah, I get emails from people saying, well, you know, I'm really in love. I'm, I'm 19, and I've been with my girlfriend for three years, and I don't know. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> she doesn't really know me and doesn't like me, but I think this is the one. Like, <laughs> dude, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> You're 18 or whatever you are. I mean... I, I, I don't think people become human until their mid twenties. At least I didn't. Yeah. You know, I mean people come to therapists, you know, they yeah. they come in and they, they say, Well, Doc, uh you know, I my marriage is no good. I can't I, I, I can't stand it. Uh, but I'm afraid to get divorced because I'm afraid to be alone. What should I do? Yeah. You know, in other words, they have these irresolvable paradoxes yeah. and they expect you to have some resolution for yeah. it. Man up. <laughs> That's what you should do. Or woman up. Well, and that's the thing. Oh, that's what I was thinking of earlier is like, uh, you know, we're talking about exposing yourself to luck, right? Um, it's For me, there's, it's hugely different traveling alone versus traveling with a partner, a woman partner, um, because of that. Because when I traveled alone... I suffered a lot more. I was lonely a lot more. I jerked off a lot more. I, you know, I sat alone in restaurants writing in my journal and reading books and, you know, pretending I wasn't incredibly lonely when I was. <laughs> I did the same thing. <laughs> but that's just valuable. Yeah. It's really valuable because then you learn, like, it's no big deal to be alone. And you learn that when you are alone, you meet a lot of people, yeah. really interesting people. And if you're there with your girlfriend or your people boyfriend... People are less likely to even talk to you. Yeah, because you you're doing your thing. You, you got that, your little world. You see that great study lately about how talking to strangers makes you happier? No. They did some study. You know, they had people, they, they were going on a train, and they said to some people, they said, talk to, talk to the person next oh, to you. Oh, I think I did see that. Yeah, yeah and, and so talking yeah. to strangers uh, makes you happy. And I, you know, that makes sense to me. It does make sense because you assume the worst about people, you know, until you need them. You know, and then suddenly like, well, I, I just happened to meet this really nice guy. No, you didn't happen to. There are nice guys around you all the time. You just never, you know, like I'm reach trying out. to teach my kid to, to talk to strangers. You mm. know, like we um, we do couch surfing sometimes, like invite, you know, foreign kids into our house to, you know, who are traveling. And yeah, that's so. Great. I, I think that um, there was a good TED talk about this too, about talking to strangers. I forget who did it and how, how important it is and how that's one of the things that's sort of changing, you know, in the, one of these cultural trends. I feel like you like, I wish I could be around to see where it's all going to go. You know, I remember you talking about that because yeah. so many cool things are happening. I mean, things ha change, things stay the same, but there are things that are changing. Yeah, things are definitely changing for the better, for the worse, whatever, you know, who knows. Like gay marriage, Who's, who would have thought, yeah. like Dan Savage says, you know, that we would see that in our lifetimes. Yeah. That, 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 and all of a sudden it's like all over the world. Yeah, yeah. Then the, the wall, you know, got a little 
chink in it, and then the whole thing came down. Same thing with marijuana, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank God, finally, finally. I mean, it, it's so crazy that the, the things that are demonstrably insane that are, like, getting back to the beginning of this conversation, you know, this, the kids being taken off in UFOs, and uh, you're like, come on, man, come on. You're putting someone in prison because this kid says he was taken off in a UFO? I don't know. Well, listen, is there a website where do you are you a are you a public figure? I know you're a professor. You write books, do you do stuff like that? I do that? research. I, I have I, lately I've been traveling a lot. Like I got to the point where people invite me to their countries to come and talk about. Well, that's nice. Talk. Yeah, so I was in Australia and and Norway and Finland the last few months. And this is based on your expert witness stuff? Or? Yeah, I, I, I do workshops. So uh-huh. I do workshops for psychologists and judges and attorneys uh-huh. and uh, forensic interviewers and other people. And I talk about um, the, the science and the problems with these things and, and how we need to be more cautious in um, relying on human judgment. So what, you're, you're anti-hysteria? <laughs> I get hysterical sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess hysteria is a bad word now, it, yeah. right? It's an anti-woman word. It, I don't not, mean it that way. Yeah, I just not. mean runaway emotion. Uh, so many areas in psychology, you know, get these, well, just in life, have these ideological polarizations. So child sex abuse, alcoholism, yeah. research, you know, that's another area where people just have very strong feelings. And What about Anton Mesmer? Have you ever researched him? The hypnotist guy. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't know mesmerization. Much about him. Yeah. Well, the whole thing with with you know hypnosis and you know Mesmer himself and Freud like sat in on one of his sessions and it's I, I mean I'm no expert on this. I've read a bit about it and it, it seems to me that it was all about liberating repressed sexual energy. That he would do, it was almost always women who were the subjects. And he would, you know, do the suggestion and... Was that the same time when they invented those vibrators, that, you know, for the treatment of hysteria? <laughs> yeah, a little earlier, <laughs> yeah. a, a little before the vibrators. But they were treating hysteria with the vulvalar massage yeah, and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. Another interesting book idea would be to sort of look for, you know, look at how this thread of... Uh, unarticulated erotic energy manifests in different ways throughout the centuries. Like Freudian. <laughs> well, you know, he was right on on some things. You know, he was he was definitely mistaken on others. But man, some stuff he got right. I know it's not popular to say that these days, but I, my favorite Freud tidbit is that his father Freud was apparently a chronic masturbator. I didn't know that. And his father Freud himself wrote about this later in his life. His father said to him, the way he got him to stop was he said, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to cut it off. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, that is... <laughs> the rest is my history. Favorite, my favorite story is the one about him being on the train with Jung, and uh, they had, uh, the, there had been some archaeological excavations in Europe, and these corpses had been unearthed in, in Germany or Holland. So Jung starts talking about these corpses, and Freud freaks out. He says he thinks Jung is talking about his his death wish for Freud, and Freud faints. 
Oh, really? He's sitting on the train. <laughs> the guy was so neurotic, yeah. you know, because Jung had this death, you know, his protege. Jung right. was, his, was the guy who was going to carry on his tradition, yeah. and then he, he defected and started all the spiritual stuff and yeah. everything, and then the corpses, and he fainted dead away. Wow. <laughs> Poor guy. Very, very delicate flower, old Sigmund. Steve Herman, thank you. This thank has you, been a, a lot of yeah, fun. I really fun. enjoyed this. I enjoyed I, it too. I mean, we should do it again sometime. I'd love to. And yeah, come just, to Hawaii. Just start with the uh, you know the Forty Seventh Street stuff and forget <laughs> about the professional stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've never been to Hawaii. It's, you haven't? No, I think I've been to every state except Hawaii Hawaii's and Louisiana. Pretty, you know, Hawaii is like if you have to live in America, it's the least American place to live. Well, that I thought Portland, Portland was that. Yeah. But yeah, now I'm, I'm changing my mind because Portland is pretty un-American in yeah, some ways, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm into tropical islands, you know. I'm all about paradise. There's no problem Why don't there. you come out? I, I can arrange you, to, you know, for you to do a talk or something. There you so go. So it can be like a professional trip. You heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that, that, that's uh, a legal contract as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Steve Herman. Uh, I I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I just want <clears throat> to quickly thank Basin and Range for that intro music that I often forget to thank them for. Basinandrangeband.com. You can check out all their music there. Of course, the great Carsey Blanton, <clears throat> Smoke Alarm, CarseyBlanton.com. You can download her to- her uh, tunes. Tongs? Is that that's soons and tongs? Tunes and songs at CarseyBlanton.com. She's got a tip jar. And Shore Design t-shirts. You can get uh, Civilized to Death shirts. You can get Sex at Dawn shirts. Paleo Modern. Hey, thanks to all you Australians out there who are ordering t-shirts. I don't know what's going on in Australia, but for some reason, it feels like half the orders I see coming in for t-shirts are coming from Australia. And you guys are paying a big... uh, surplus on the shipping as well so very cool i don't know if it's just that people in australia are more into t-shirts or they cost more down there so it seems like a bargain i don't know what the hell's going on but uh it's cool that there are people running around australia with our shirts on if you're going to order a bunch of shit from amazon you might want to consider going through the uh the portal at chrisryanphd.com there's a little amazon thing there right on the home page We'll get two or three percent of whatever you spend there, so it's a painless way of throwing some Amazon money our way. All right, that's it. Uh, I was on NPR, uh, by the way, this week. I forgot to mention that in the intro, <clears throat> but if you, uh, I think it's called the TED Radio Hour. And they talk about the seven deadly sins. I'm the first interview in that uh, episode. I talk about lust, and I make the uh, problematic argument. That lust shouldn't be considered a sin because lust is just desire, hunger, want, right? It's not necessarily even sexual. There's lust for learning, lust for knowledge. You know, there are all sorts of things that we can lust after which aren't uh, shameful or sinful in any way. Anyway, you can check that out at uh, NPR.com. Look for the TED Radio Hour. Thanks for listening. Here's Carsey Blanton to play us out with her fantastic acoustic version of her song Smoke Alarm He said baby what's a big deal feel what you want to feel say what you want to say you're gonna die one day for example I could kiss you 
just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Dance into the ground.